Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronuk. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And on today's episode, we begin our final couple of episodes on non-small cell lung cancer. Last time we covered the ins and outs of early stage non-small cell lung cancer, its uh, diagnosis, its treatment, and this time we're moving on to talking about it in the metastatic setting. Man, this has really been a crazy wild journey. We've, we've talked to so many different experts, gone through so many different episodes. I didn't have a good understanding of lung cancer until really... We, until we really recorded this series and you know i'm thankful to have done it and i've learned a ton and this episode's going to be a good nice cap off in the metastatic setting and then after this we have a really really good guest interview with jack west who's you know really just a leader in the field yeah i'm excited you know i gotta say as interesting as lung cancer is to me um I'm really looking forward to getting back to some episodes about blood i feel a little bit uh a little bit less less useful less able to contribute in this field but uh excited for the future Soon, Dan, soon. Don't worry. <laughs> All right, listeners, let's move on to the show. All right, guys, how are we doing today? Uh, you know, I'm doing good, Ronak, but what I want everyone to hear about is the recent story of finding something stuck on you. I know that sounds weird, but tell us that story. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's quite the story. Uh, long story short, just to spare our listeners, uh, I went to my first... Uh, Picking Circle, which if anyone isn't familiar, it's a it's a it's a bluegrass festival, and had a great time. Uh, however, I realized a few days later I was starting to have a little bit of discomfort on my back, and I but I couldn't quite see it. I thought maybe it was just you know some irritation there. Well, fast forward a few days, and uh, I asked my wife to take a look at my back, and lo and behold, I had my first tick, a full sized tick. I've never had one of these before. Needless to say, it took about an hour, hour and a half with a pair of tweezers to get that out of me. Uh, I'm glad it's gone, but the fact that I had a pet tick essentially for a week is a little bit horrifying. <laughs> yeah, that's not chill. That's not no. chill. I don't know how you didn't find that, Ronak. I mean, come on, man. Is there a huge I, tick on you? I, I just, I don't know. I, I'm from New Jersey. That's although I guess we have ticks there, but I also never really ventured out outdoors when I lived up there because that's like not my thing. I was trying to do something a little bit more adventurous and this is what I get for it. So maybe I'll just stick to, to recording podcasts in the comforts of my apartment. I think it's for the best. Yeah. And, you know, we can uh, at some point we may have an opportunity to discuss all of the um, red blood cell implications of parasitic Dan, let's so. let's uh let's not get ahead of ourselves here. We, uh, <laughs> this is a <laughs> lung cancer episode. Yeah, 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 right. yeah. Right. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. And I I also hope not to be the case study for that for that episode if we do do that in the future. But guys, you know, today I am excited because you know we've spent a long time talking about the treatment of early stage non small cell lung cancer, and we're finally at the episodes about metastatic. And so I'm excited to kick this off and really round out our series. It's been amazing to have learned so much and reviewed the trials and like honestly i think i kind of get it now i'm definitely feeling a lot more confident for onk boards well that's good yeah that's that's the goal that's certainly the goal 
And so guys, I, I wanted to kick things off here. I have a I have a case for you. I abbreviated it. You know, we we've done the workup already, so I'll kind of just start that and maybe we can use that as a good discussion point to, to kick things off. You guys ready? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. So we have a 58-year-old female who's a non-smoker with a 3.4 centimeter left lower lobe adenocarcinoma. She also had a nine millimeter left upper load mass a left hyler node that was also involved. She had adrenal metastatic disease as well as mets to the brain. So, like, again, can we just quickly summarize, uh, you know, our approach to these patients? Because I think this patient also really highlights why we do all the uh, normal workup that we do for our patients. Yeah, this is a great case just to emphasize the fact that in cancer, staging is incredibly important. So as a reminder, in lung cancer, In the earlier episodes, we talked about mediastinal staging, and uh, one one really good way to do this is an endobronchial ultrasound with biopsy, that bronchoscopy, and EBUS with biopsy. Please look back at that episode if you haven't already. We talked about obtaining a PET-CT scan, which just helps us look at distant sites of metastatic disease, and in this case, that would have picked up the adrenal metastasis. And then also, we talked about the importance of a brain MRI in many lung cancer patients, depending on size of the tumor or nodal involvement. Just in general, if your tumor is greater than four centimeters or you've got any nodal involvement, then you're most likely going to need that brain MRI. So in general, always think about that brain MRI and you can always look up the exact guidelines in the NCCN on what the panel recommends on when to get the brain MRI. And all of those were key here because if we didn't get the staging studies and we just said, well, this patient has a 3.4 centimeter left lower lobe adenocarcinoma and a nine millimeter left upper lobe mass as well. And that's all we knew. We could have taken this patient to surgical resection and done a disservice. So it's really important to get that staging scans to look for distant metastatic disease. Another important thing we highlighted last time that's sort of critical for the workup is IHC and molecular testing. So remember the tumor proportion score or the the TPS, an easy way to remember is T for thoracic because that's really where it's most relevant is a predictive marker for how well a patient might respond to immune therapy. And then molecular testing, that's, that is looking for particular mutations, specific genetic changes, is very important in lung cancer because that'll allow us to determine what the treatment options might be out there, what targeted options might exist. And we'll have more on this uh, in a little bit. But given what we know about this patient so far, she has widespread disease, and so we're not really thinking about surgical resection. We're not thinking about focused radiation with curative intent. We're really shifting our focus to a palliative mode of treatment, trying to reduce the symptoms related to the tumor, extend life, and extend quality of life. And the way that it's best to do that in in the case of widely metastatic disease is with systemic therapy. So how do you guys tend to think about choosing chemotherapy in these cases? One thing I want to mention before we get into that is that when we think about getting these IHC studies like PDL1 TPS versus CPS score, it's purely a function of how the trials were run. So it's not like one score is better than the other. And the other big thing that you might hear about is tumor mutational burden. When you get these molecular testing results, you might see that a high tumor mutational burden is very similar to a high PDL1, and those would be predictive responses to immune therapy. So I just wanted to throw it in there, but but I really want to hear from Ronak. How do you choose chemotherapy in, in cases of non-small cell lung cancer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, and and it's 
to reiterate a little bit, you know, the first step is understanding what the histology is, as we said, because if it's adeno versus squamous versus something else, the type of treatments that we can offer patients safely would be dictated by that. And that's especially important because as we've talked about, like in squamous, we're not going to be choosing pemetrexid, for instance, or bevacizumab, but you could do something like that for adeno. So that's definitely the first thing that goes through my mind. And then, you know, we also talked about the importance of platinum agents in the treatment of these cancers. And and one thing I wanted to highlight, guys, and, and this is something that I don't maybe quite understand is, you know, I see a lot, of, a lot of carboplatin used in the metastatic setting. So last time, guys, we talked about, we spent a lot of time talking about the lace pooled analysis and talking about how cisplatin was a, was a great option for patients with, uh, with lung cancer. And I've been seeing a lot of regimens, including carboplatin, not cisplatin. So I was just curious, why the shift in, in the approach to the platinum agent? Yeah, I think one of the big things here is understanding that cisplatin in general is a chemotherapy drug, is a highly toxic drug, and we actually have specific criteria on those who, who would even be eligible to receive cisplatin. And Dan, do you want to talk a little bit about cisplatin eligibility and toxicities of cisplatin? Sure. So the thing that I always keep in mind with cisplatin is that this is a big gun when it comes to chemotherapy. Like This is the old school, super intense cytotoxic agent that tends to have a lot of toxicity compared with even other forms of platinum chemotherapy. It, you know, has good results if you can use it, but just keep that in mind. So the first thing I always think about is what someone's general performance status is. This is not a drug you're going to want to offer to your older, frailer patients, sort of more of a gestalt thing when you're meeting a person for the first time. Beyond that, the other big thing that comes to my mind is renal function. So if somebody has impaired renal clearance, this is a drug that's pretty hard on the kidneys. Uh, So an EGFR below 60 kind of gives me pause. There's plenty of other platinum agents out there that we could use, but cisplatin is probably not for them. The other sort of specific toxicities to keep in mind with cisplatin are neuropathy and ototoxicity. So if somebody has baseline impaired hearing or some polyneuropathy from other, other causes, probably want to reach for a different drug. And then this is a drug that requires a lot of fluid to be given with it. So people with bad heart failure, NYHA class three, heart failure and beyond, someone who's not going to be able to tolerate those large boluses of fluid, also not a great fit. And just, again, keeping in mind that this is a highly emetogenic drug. Uh, so that's something that you're going to want to counsel patients on. We, we do support patients through this to, to some extent with a huge package of different antiemetics every time this drug is given. But uh, it's something patients should be aware of before they go into a cisplatin-based regimen. And I think that's the biggest thing is that, you know, it's very, it's a toxic drug. And if somebody is in the metastatic palliative setting, then we want to spare toxicity and give a drug that has good efficacy, but could spare these more severe side effects of high hematogenic risk or possibly landing a patient in the hospital because they're just so functionally declined from getting the chemotherapy. So that's why in general, even cisplatin in a curative setting, whether that's in lung cancer adjuvantly, or another good example is in bladder cancer neoadjuvantly, we try to do cisplatin due to curative intent. But in the metastatic setting, I always reach for that carboplatin because it's less toxic. It has its own side effects, more myelosuppression, but less, less toxic from the things that we just talked about with cisplatin. Guys, that's an extremely helpful. So that definitely does help clarify things quite a bit. Maybe that makes sense as to why you guys, so you guys asked me, you know, what is your standard treatment approach? 
I will say from the few patients that I've seen in my clinic uh, that I've had with lung cancer, in general, options for treatment in the for adeno, so non-squamous, would be something like carboplatin, pemetrexid, or carboplatin, paclitaxel, and bevacizumab, as opposed to squamous, because you can't use that pemetrexid, like we said, or bev. I've seen carbo and um, gemcitabine, or I've seen carbo and a different type of taxane, so like docetaxel, paclitaxel, something like that. Now, the other the other important thing that we talk about all the time in the metastatic setting is also immune therapy, and so I'm kind of curious to talk a little bit about this. You know, this is clearly the chemotherapy backbone, if you will, but how does IO fit into all of this? Immunotherapy is an important backbone in the treatment of metastatic lung cancer, regardless of what the histological findings show. So anybody with metastatic lung cancer, they're generally speaking going to get some form of immunotherapy in general. There are caveats to that. One big caveat is the molecular testing. We know that patients who have an EGFR mutation or an ALK mutation don't respond as well to immunotherapy. So we want to always check those before starting immunotherapy because we don't want to just give them immunotherapy if it's not going to help them and possibly cause some side effects. The important thing with the TPS score, and remember we said TPS for thoracic, is that some patients may be eligible for immunotherapy monotherapy in the metastatic setting. We talked about the regimens that you would give somebody in the metastatic setting, those carboplatin-based regimens, and histology dictates the second drug with that. And in some cases, we can spare cytotoxic chemotherapy as a whole and just give IO monotherapy, which is huge. And that's reserved for the patients with a PDL one score greater than 50%. And we'll talk a little bit more about the details of that in, in just a few minutes. But I think the big thing to remember is that Every patient with metastatic lung cancer, unless they have a contraindication to immune therapy, meaning they have some bad autoimmune disease up front, will get an addition of immune therapy to their chemotherapy, or they'll get immune therapy alone, unless they have a mutation in EGFR or ALK. Got it. And so, Vivek, are there certain cutoffs that you use to decide whether or not someone can get monotherapy versus whether you want to incorporate with, with chemotherapy as well? How does that work? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And, you know, there are so many trials in the metastatic setting now that look at combinations of chemotherapy and immunotherapy or immunotherapy alone in metastatic lung cancer. So we just want to summarize the high points of this. I think one really, really important thing to remember is a PDL1 greater than 50%, we can do IO monotherapy. And this was proven in a few key trials. I think one of the big key trials with this one was Keynote 024, which really showed that single-agent pembrolizumab compared to a platinum doublet chemotherapy showed better overall survival at one year, and we're talking 70% versus 50% overall survival at one year with pembrolizumab alone compared to a platinum doublet. So I think that's pretty big, that we can spare patients chemotherapy and just give them immune therapy, which in general has less side effects and is much better tolerated. And that was really proven to show true, particularly in this high PDL1 group. There was also another trial, the Empower 110 trial, which also approved this for atezolizumab monotherapy. And it showed similar overall survival results that showed, you know, pretty big improvement at a year compared to chemotherapy. 
what we see often is that people will reach for that pembrolizumab as monotherapy if that pdl one score is greater than 50%. And that's generally because it was one of the first to be approved and we just have more experience and practice with it. And you'll hear patients refer to that medicine as Keytruda. So pembrolizumab is also known as Keytruda. And I think that's important to know because patients will come talk to you about that. And getting a little bit into just pattern recognition here, many of you probably already figured this out, but just to outline it uh, more explicitly, you're going to hear a lot of trial names uh, and just both in the course of your training and in the course of these episodes. And uh, anything that has a keynote that is a pembrolizumab-based trial. So keynote, Keytruda. So if you see keynote, think pembrolizumab and something in some cancer. Empower or I Empower is going to involve itezolizumab, and checkmate trials are nivolumab trials. You can kind of get a little bit of a head start uh, as to what's going on in a trial if you, uh, if you just recognize one of those three terms. And part of the reason why there are so, so darn many of these is just they are used in a wide range of solid tumors, and even some uh, some hematologic malignancies these days, there just is an abundance of these trials. That's why you know there's a three digit number after each of these uh, after each of these keynote empower or, or checkmates. They knew there were going to be a lot of these, uh, and so they planned ahead. To be honest, Dan, I when I first started fellowship, I was like I would always ignore the number portion and just look at the trial name, and I was like. Yeah. I read about Keynote last week and it definitely wasn't this, but maybe I misunderstood it. Uh, and then it took me a little while to get that. So, you know, uh, on behalf of our listeners, thank you for clarifying that up front because it took me a while to figure that out by myself. You know, so Vivek, thanks. So you said like in in greater in PDL one scores greater than 50% IO monotherapy, but I've also seen IO given with with chemotherapy. And so is that for the patients that have less than 50%? Is that what you're alluding to? Yeah, that's exactly right. So when we have anybody with a PDL one score less than 50%, we always think chemotherapy plus immune therapy. That could even mean a PDL one score of 0%. We will still add immune therapy and those patients still derive benefit from treatment. The best trial that every hematology oncology fellow should know, and we've gone through some really important ones in the last few episodes, and we really want to highlight a few key trials, is the Keynote 189 trial. And this really was the randomized phase three trial that compared chemotherapy alone against chemotherapy plus immunotherapy. And the patients that were included were those with adenocarcinoma histology, metastatic lung cancers. And because of that, the regimens for chemotherapy was carboplatin and pemetrexid. So remember, that's your classic adenocarcinoma regimen, adding that pemetrexid. And so you had that carboplatin, pemetrexid versus carboplatin, pemetrexid, and pembrolizumab. You'll hear some people call, call that carbopempem, which confused me for the longest time. And really what we found was there was impressive overall survival benefits with the addition of pembrolizumab to the chemotherapy backbone. I think one really important thing to highlight in that trial is that they allowed for crossover because at the time, the standard of care after progression on chemotherapy in the metastatic setting was to give immunotherapy. And it was critical that we really knew, is it better to add all of the combo up front versus sequential, right? Do chemotherapy followed by immune therapy? And even allowing for crossover, we still found a great overall survival benefit. So it really showed that we should be including immunotherapy up front in the control of metastatic lung cancer. 
The interesting thing about this trial is that what we found before it with the chemotherapy regimen of carboplatin pemetrexid, that pemetrexid maintenance benefited people and had improved outcomes. So in this study, patients got both pemetrexid and pembrolizumab maintenance in the immune therapy arm. And I think that's important because we say that, oh yeah, you're going to get immune therapy, but in maintenance, they'll also be getting some element of chemotherapy and the big thing is we don't know which one's doing the heavy lifting. Is it the pemetrexid or is it the pembrolizumab? Because in these patients, we still don't know, is it the chemo that's doing the job? Is it the pembrolizumab that's doing the job? Or is it some synergistic effect that we just don't quite understand yet? And I think that's important to know that, you know, we're giving patients a combination of chemotherapy and immune therapy, largely because we're not sure which one's doing the heavy lifting, and we just do it all up front so that we get the best response possible. So Keynote 189, a very, very important trial. And that's why right now, one of the most common regimens that you'll see in the metastatic setting, and particularly for adenocarcinoma histology, is carboplatin, pemetrexid, pembrolizumab, or carbo pem If there was a squamous histology, we have data suggesting that carbotaxol, pembrolizumab is another great regimen, and that's another very common one. I just wanted to briefly mention that look up the NCCN guidelines to look at other immunotherapy regimens out there. There are others, and I'm not saying that one of these is better than carboplatin, pembrolizumab, pemetrexid regimens. I'm just saying that there are others out there, and you'll see different practices in different areas. There were a couple of studies, a couple of Empower trials that showed atezolizumab, another one of these immunotherapy agents, will work in conjunction with other types of chemotherapy with carboplatin backbone. And also, there was, and you'll see commercials about this, the Optivo and Yearvoy commercials with a bunch of people running around with their dogs and watching a movie by the docs or whatever they're doing in those commercials. And they'll, they'll talk about, ask your doctor about giving Optivo and Yearvoy for their treatment of metastatic lung cancer. And what that means, Optivo is nivolumab and Yervoy is ipilimumab. And so knowing that there's a combination immunotherapy approach available out there that was shown to be superior to chemotherapy alone is important to know. The one caveat with that is that combination of Yervoy and nivolumab, you're getting that dual combination of immune therapy continuously. It's not that you drop the dual and just go to nivolumab alone, which makes the rates of potential immunotherapy side effects higher as you as you put these patients on maintenance therapy or continue their immune therapy. Instead of just one immune therapy agent, you have two. So I'd say that's the caveat there, but just knowing that's an option is also very important. There are caveats to these trials, and we'll flesh some of this out with our expert discussion with Dr. Jack West in, in the next episode. So just to summarize what, we, what we've been talking about here, remember patients with pdl one greater than 50%, we typically will start with immunotherapy alone. Now there's a caveat to that. If, if patients are highly symptomatic from their metastatic disease, oftentimes we will combine chemo and immunotherapy for PDL, even with patients with pdl one greater than 50%. And a lot of that's just, do you really want to risk it? Do you really want to gamble on this patient who's very symptomatic uh, on whether or not the IO alone will be highly effective for them. Sometimes you just want to hit them with, with, what, with everything you can to try and reduce that burden of disease, reduce their burden of symptoms. So, but by and large, for your patients with minimally symptomatic metastatic disease and pdl one greater than 50%, you can start with immunotherapy alone up front. For patients with less than 50% pdl one expression, 
there are a lot of options out there, but it's usually some combination of conventional chemotherapy and an immunotherapy agent. A lot of people use Pembro just because it did end up being first to market, and that's what a lot of folks just have more experience with. But um, check those NCCN guidelines. There's a lot of combinations out there, and uh, chemo plus IO tends to show really good efficacy for these patients. That's awesome. And and so I think that's a that's a great general framework. The the one thing I did want to bring attention to, because I think this is important to consider, especially in our patient, is her metastatic disease of the brain. Is there good brain penetration with these agents, specifically the IO? That's a great question. Uh, it's it's hard to know what kind of response that you'll get intracranially with these agents. It's very different than our upcoming discussion on these driver mutations, these EGFR TKIs and these ALK TKIs. You know, again, remember that these patients we're talking about where they're getting immunotherapy up front, they have no driver mutations in EGFR or ALK, and that's very important. The use of a combination chemotherapy and immunotherapy approach in a patient with brain mats, you can see a response, but the best way of dealing with that is by talking to a radiation oncologist and referring them for a dose of what we call stereotactic radiosurgery, and that's, again, just high-dose radiation to the metastatic site, so that way we can just get rid of it, not worry about it, and really not worry about having to deal with the use of steroids and immune therapy at the same time, because that also is conflicting if somebody has swelling in a, in a brain site. So the use of, you know, what I like to think about as consolidative radiation is very important in these patients who are getting treatment for their metastatic disease, that you can spot radiate areas that could be problem childs in the future. And always referring to radiation oncology for a brain met is extremely important. Got it. So you're trying to get some local control while you're also starting them on more systemic therapy. But that that certainly makes a lot of sense. Guys, I think that was a great discussion about our approach to metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, specifically in the patients without driver mutations. And, and listeners, we'll talk about driver mutations in next week's episode, but this is a, a great general framework. So again, just to summarize, we're, if there's going to be chemotherapy involved, we are still going back to the fundamentals and thinking about the basic histology and choosing our our agents appropriately. But as we learned from all these really, really important trials, there is a role for immunotherapy, whether that's uh, immune therapy alone without chemotherapy and someone that has a, a TPS score that has a PDL one score greater than 50%, or in combination with chemotherapy if it's if it's less than 50%. And and so that's awesome. And, you know, again, having taken care of a few lung cancer patients in the outpatient setting uh, in, in my short time in fellowship so far, it really is impressive to see them continuing to do so well um, with the addition of the immune therapy. So certainly an exciting time to be an oncologist. Yeah, definitely. And I think the key takeaway, like you said, is that every patient with metastatic lung cancer, if they can get it, metastatic non-small cell lung cancer will get immunotherapy alone or in addition to chemotherapy always. And that's critically important to remember that fact. And the other thing I wanted to mention is people might be wondering why 50%? Is 55% different than 90%? And the answer is we truly don't know the answer to that. And there's a lot to be learned. There's more testing that's also important. I just want to throw one plug in really quick. Tumor mutational burden is an important other marker other than PDL1 as a predictive marker to immune therapy. And I would like to see more of the data mature on that. And 
I wouldn't be surprised if we're talking about tumor mutational burden as an important marker for a predictive response to doing something like immune therapy alone. Yeah. And the biggest thing is just, you know, this is a constantly changing field. We're always getting new data. So just pay attention to what's coming out. And this treatment is very likely to evolve over the next months to years. Absolutely. Great reminder, Dan. All right, guys. So until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.